uh, February 9th. Everybody knows we're going to have normal Sunday services, 8.30, 10.30. And what, what are we doing? 4.30, February the 9th, right back in this spot right here. We are going to have our From the Ground Up campaign. We're talking, we've got a piece of property. We're under escrow. We're in escrow. And I've been told repeatedly that, Jeff, you need to be clear that on February 9th, we're going to be asking for money. So are you ready? We're going to be asking for money. Okay, so anyway, uh, no, seriously, February 9th, we, we're going to have to see where does this, where do we go? Are we looking for, um, you know, what, where are we going from here? So uh, many of you have seen the presentation that was done in November and that, you should receive that in your missive this week. So go back and look at that presentation. If you've not seen it, you really should, because we're not going to be just doing another presentation on the 9th. And uh, it's going to be extraordinary. We're going to have some testimonies from people. And just, I think it's going to be a fantastic night. One hour, 4.30 to 5.30. And if you have any questions about what's coming up or about the property or about anything, uh, we had a link that you could either ask those via email or there's a table outside you can ask. You can just write it down and give it to us. We're going to try to front run, uh, front run some of those questions so that you get your questions answered as it relates to the property and what's, the what ifs and how and how all that works and logistics. So February 9th, big night for Church of the Red Door to see uh, what the Lord has in store for us over the coming years. I also was given this, save the date, women's breakfast, March 14th, 10 to 1230. Uh, March 14th at Desert Willow Golf Club. Ladies, I know that sells out pretty quickly, and I, I don't know exactly what the capacity is, but you'll want to get uh, on, on that on your calendar. I think that is about it. You ready to pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We are going to be crossing. We're crossing the Jordan today. We're, we're maybe even in the middle of the stream today. We're excited about this progression and trying to understand our own spiritual journey and in doing so, we are desperate for your spirit, as we always are, Lord. We cannot. This book is too complicated, Lord. It's too, there's a simplicity to it, but there's a, there's a subtle elegance that is endlessly complex and endlessly uh, discoverable. Help us discover, each one in our own individual ways, what that might look like this morning, wherever we are in our journeys. And we thank you in advance for being the king of kings that you are precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're talking about crossing the Jordan. We're going to do this. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to bring up Jaden. Jaden, if you'd come on up. If you remember last year, Jaden and her father, father's a doctor, they went down and they were, they crossed the Jordan in a sense, and they did some ministerial work. And I just said, look, Jaden, why don't you come up and share that a little bit with us and tell us what happened on your extraordinary adventure in crossing the Jordan. So for those who don't know me or don't remember me, last year I asked for toothbrush donations from the church and toothpaste, and together we were, I was able to collect 1,000 toothbrushes and 500 tubes of toothpaste, toothpaste sorry, which was really great. And so um, that July I went with, uh, to Paraguay with my dad, and we um, participated in a medical mission, and we were able to give medical services to all these people. And when I was there, I handed out toothbrushes to the people in need because it's definitely a necessity and it's hard for them to get down there. So um, that was great. I was able to like talk to the children, talk to the families. They were so thankful. And the smiles on their faces after I gave them just like a simple toothbrush and a toothpaste was just so like life-changing. And I really want to thank all of you for that and for being able to provide me with that experience. 
So yeah. So so Jane, I want to ask you the question. So you live in this kind of this Disneyland place that we call the Coachella Valley. Yes. Was this did this was this kind of a shock to your system in going down there and being exposed to some of the things you were? Yes, it was really eye opening, and I'm so blessed to have all like the necessities that I need because some of these people can't even get the basic dental care or like the medical services. Some of them had had like tumors on their legs for years and like they come out so blessed because and happy because they finally were able to get it off. And I was glad that I was able to be a part of that. What do you think group. it did at your core? What did it do to you? What's the primary thing you think it did? It just really opened my eyes and now I want to be a doctor more than ever now because I want to help people the way my dad was able to help them. So yeah. Are we, are we proud of her? I think uh, that's awesome. We love you. We love you, girl. Love you. So you can cross the Jordan at any age. You can move. Now, look, she went into a place where they had physical need, real physical need, real financial need and physical need. Some say, well, we're in a place where there's really not that much. I mean, you could go kind of to Mecca. Certainly there's some need in Mecca and there's some places and Robert and others. You know, we have the Coachella Valley Rescue Mission that we're close to. Well, that's for sure. But, you know, there's probably a significant a need here in the valley behind some of the walls of these country clubs since we make up 130 golf courses here and uh, just under a million people during the mid part of the season there's some people that are as desperate for someone to invade their lives and bring healing and hope and a message of a message of something beyond this life and that is our task and that's what we're going to continue to talk about this morning are you ready for this it's going to be good i'm telling you it's going to be good why because I'm preaching it, no, I could, the only thing I can do is mess it up. Uh, this book is eternally powerful. This has been changing lives for thousands of years, and it continues to change mine daily, daily. And so we're going to get into this. So here's the question for you this morning. What are the characteristics of those who cross? Well, in many ways, the characteristics of those who cross are a function of the characteristics that they see and then take confidence in their creator. One of the purposes, the primary purposes of the wilderness is to shock us out of our daydreams and bring us into a place of clarity about what really matters. This last Sunday, and I'll never forget, I, it was one of those places I know that I'll remember. Rick Carlson was out in the foyer, and I was talking to somebody and he goes, have you heard Kobe Bryant just died? And it just, I don't know what it was. Or I, I mean, a lot of people have really passed a pretty significant notoriety in terms of kind of famous people over the last couple of years. I think of, you know, in the music business and the, even all the way back to Michael Jackson, but even recently Prince and David Bowie and all these different kinds of people that may not mean much to you, but given the generation that you are in, they were, it's a shock. And Kobe, even though quite a bit younger than I, I am, uh, was a shock to my system because he was so young and vibrant and he had all of his life in front of him and he was so wealthy. You know, I mean, he had all, he'd, he'd, he'd stacked all this stuff up and it was just tragically and not to mention the other families and his own, his own daughter, 13-year-old daughter. It's a shock to your system. You don't realize that it's coming. And in some ways that shocks you out of your daydream. It, it's like a moment, I don't know if you saw the tribute that the Lakers gave to Kobe the other night. Uh, in their first game back, they had skipped a game, and then they came back, and they were singing Amazing Grace, and it just felt like a window of opportunity to say, hey, there's something beyond this life. But immediately it started, conversation went back towards legacy, and that he played defense for 48 minutes, and all this other kind of stuff, and his power as an athlete, and 
And then they were saying, well, should we play the game? Because I promise you Kobe wants us to play this game. And I'm just thinking, you know what? I'm not so sure he cares that much about basketball anymore. Now, I'm not making, I'm not in any way insinuating that I know about his spiritual walk. I knew he uh, had been to Mass even that morning. I'm not making any judgments about his spiritual destination. I just, I'm just telling you whether he's in the presence of the Father or not, he doesn't care about basketball anymore. And yet we need to be shocked out of our daydream. And what does that? The wilderness does that. The gospel does it first. It grabs us. It, it rivets us, our attention, onto the cross that 2,000 years ago. And could it be true that I could be made right with my creator as a function of the vicarious death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? I mean, could that impart life to me and give me eternal life. That's shock number one. Shock number two is once you get baptized, you go right into the wilderness and you continue to be shaken from your daydreams, the purpose of the wilderness. There's some things that we learn, some characteristics about God we learn in the wilderness. And if we don't learn these early and often and completely, then we are not prepared to cross. Why? Because when we cross the Jordan, we are crossing into a war zone. Let's be clear. It's a war zone on the other side. It would really be no different than if, I, if, if you saw some young kid and he's out smoking a cigarette on the thing and his, you know, whatever. And, and somebody came by and said, hey, yeah, we're part of a Green Beret ops and we're headed into, you know, be, be dropped behind enemy lines. We're going to be doing a covert operation in Afghanistan. Why don't you join us? He's like, oh, well, whatever. I don't really have that much to do today. I mean, you say, well, that's just absurd. Well, it's the same way in the kingdom. If you're dropped behind enemy lines to do what Paul, again, says we've talked about over the last number of weeks, our battle is not against flesh and blood. He gives all kinds of military kind of pictures. We're equipped. We have helmet of salvation and breastplate of righteousness and all these things. So he's the one that uses the metaphor of war. It's a war zone. If you're going to be going into a place to see people release, and that was Jesus, he even used that language. I came to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To do that, there's going to be a battle. If you're ill-prepared to do that, you're not ready to cross. If you're, not, if you're not ready to cross, you need to completely absorb yourselves in these following characteristics of God. Is he, does he forsake us? Will he provide? It, does he really have the authority? Does he have the power? Does he have the... Does he know the end from the beginning? All these things give me great confidence so that it begins to change who I am as I believe the reality of who he is. If I just think it's me, I, I, who would want to? But I'm partnered with the creator of the universe. So number one, Isaiah chapter 41. The question is, does God really know the future? Does he then have the power to execute on that? plan? Well, the answer, without any equivocation, is yes. Imagine, if you would, many of you have been business uh, men or women in your lives. Many of you have built significant, sizable businesses. If somebody came up to you and said, I've got a deal for you. Oh, have I got a deal for you. I've got a partner that would like to partner with you in your business. And here's the beauty of this partner. He knows everything that's going to happen in the future. He's going to know exactly who the right customers are, what the trends are, and the markets and everything else, and, and uh, you know, what, what things will take off and what things will fail and whether oil prices will go up or down. Wouldn't it be nice to have all that information? I mean, you'd be crazy, number one, to believe anybody had a partner that knew all that in business. But if you actually did buy in, who, who would not want them as a partner? 
knows the end from the beginning, knows that uh, we're going to be, this product's going to be profitable or it's going to lose its patent three years in and all these, uh, you know, and then there's going to be extraordinary uh, market pressures that are going to force you into bankruptcy. Don't go down that path, go down this path. There's something called, you know, the internet, pre-internet. You know, there's the thing, internet's going to come along and you didn't even know what the internet was. And could you have positioned yourself well if you knew somebody that knew the future? And yet the Bible says that that's, the characteristic of God, and yet we still struggle to pray. How weird. Do we not imagine that he speaks? Isaiah 41, verse 7, uh, and then verse 21 through 24. Listen to what Isaiah says here. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. I alluded to this in the context of idolatry, but listen to this again. The craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with a hammer encourages him and beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. Okay, so they're building this scene realm thing, right? We don't trust things we can't see. So we want to worship something we can see. Is that any different for us today? I don't believe it. I, I want to see it. And it catch this. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what will take place. Okay, so you're going to build your little, your little idol. You're going to build your little thing that you can see and worship. Ask them this. Just tell us what's going to take place in the future. Just, just tell us what's going to happen there. That's all I want to know. And, and by the way, whatever happened yesterday, the former events, would you decree, would, give us your final decree on what that meant. Just tell us. That we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us, just tell us what's coming. Just tell us what's coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you're of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. I said, well, that's, you know, that's pretty strong language. Notice if you go back up here uh, to verse 7, uh, the latter part of 7, it says, he who fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. What is that idol? I mean, we can't even keep it stable, so we've got to put it down with nails. Otherwise, our God, the thing that we're worshiping, will uh, everything in life totters other than God. I mean, I mean, this is just a beautiful metaphor for everything in life is so, well, we talk, talked about last week. Two weeks ago, hevel, hevel. It's like vapor and smoke. It's just, there's, not, there's no permanence to it. If you're going to partner with somebody, you need to understand, if you're going to cross, if you're going to be a Jordan crosser, you have to have this so firmly entrenched in the very core of your personal ethos that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's got this. I don't know if you saw uh, this week. We were at the Phoenix Open on Monday and Tuesday. We had an outreach on Monday night. Some of you went. Uh, I don't know what the total number was, but there was uh, well over 1,000 people there. It was great. I interviewed some of the tour players. We'll try to do it here in the Valley again next year is our goal. Um, but that's it's called Tales from the Tour. And if there was a little incident that happened last year with a guy named Gary Woodland who plays on the tour. And there was, this, there was, a, it was a young lady with, um, what was her, Down syndrome. And I don't know if you've seen this, but the PGA Tour has really played this up. And they brought her out on number, hole number 16. So hole number 16 is now like a football game. It, it's completely surrounded, three tiers high, all the way around this, what is essentially a 150-yard par three, 
all the way around it and they never stop drinking all day and they never start partying and yelling and everything and there's no there's no quiet so you don't go and the guy doesn't hold up the little quiet sign you know on the golf and they get a golf clap at the end people are just freaking out the entire hole so they brought this young girl out to gary and said allow her to hit a shot so she hit a shot hit it in the bunker and everybody's clapping and everything it was in the practice round and then she went over there, and, and he says, okay, now can you hit this bunker shot? And she's just like, I got it. I got this. I got this. And now that's become their campaign slogan, I got this. She goes into the bunker. She hits the shot, somehow gets it out of the bunker, hits it about 12 feet from the hole. And he goes, okay, this putt. And she goes, I got this. I got this. I got this. And she goes, and she actually makes it. And the place just goes, and now she's kind of become a celebrity of sorts. I got this. Can I just tell you, God is saying to you right now, wherever you are, whatever challenge you're facing, I got this. The question is, do you know that? Have you internalized that? Do you realize that? I know you may be struggling. There may be a season that extends well beyond what you could ever imagine. God is saying to you right now, unless you understand this, you will never be safe for a war zone. God is saying, I got this. Relax. Relax. I've got this. Number two, God can never, ever be threatened. Do you understand that? There is no power that might sneak up at the last minute and, and somehow overthrow his kingdom. He can never, ever be threatened. And I, I don't think that somehow we don't internalize that. Or we say, yes, we ascribe those qualities to God, but somehow they won't, they won't drip down to my life. Can I just tell you, God has got this and he cannot be threatened. No one can take this away from him. Nehemiah 9, verse 6, you alone are the Lord. It's you who've made the heavens. The heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. We have this temporary, temporary rebellion that's going on on planet Earth. Not with the animal kingdom, not with... Not that they're, they're begging, groaning for the revelation of the sons of God one day. They're groaning for it. It's just this one group of created in the image of God, Imago Dei, that says, I will run it my own way. I've got this. God, you don't have this. I have it. It's a big mistake. Why? Because God's never going to be defeated. His purposes will stand. I was doing a, a little men's group this last week, and we came across uh, Proverbs chapter 21, and I think it's verse 30. And it simply says, there is no counsel, there is no wisdom, and there is no understanding against the Lord. Do you understand that? I don't care how, well, this is the way I see things. It's irrelevant if it doesn't align with how he sees things. There's no counsel I can give. You know, some of you come to me occasionally for counseling, and, and uh, I don't have time to do as much of it as I would like. But as you do, I, you'll hear me say this at some point. Everything trumps this. The only unassailable counsel is the counsel of what God speaks to you, as long as it's not in, not in conflict with his word, obviously. That's unassailable. God's counsel is unassailable. His wisdom inscrutable. There's, no, there's nothing I can learn outside of his wisdom. And then Jesus becomes to us the wisdom and righteousness of God, the Bible says. It's powerful. Do we believe that? He can never be defeated. Do you have this so deep in your core 
Well, how do we get that? Well, we've got to experience the wilderness, and he gives us opportunities to do that. So when you're in the wilderness, by the way, wilderness, don't think of that as a bad place. It's a necessary part of your discipleship. You had, there were skirmishes that went on, little battles that went out in the wilderness, and, and, but they saw God provide. They saw that he was Jehovah Jireh, Gen- Genesis 22, if you go all the way back prior to the Exodus. You know, Abraham's walking up the mountain. That's where we get this Jehovah Jireh. And he says, the Lord will provide. And he was talking about a sacrifice rather than having to sacrifice his own son. He just knew that God would provide. He is Jehovah Jireh. And then Jehovah Jireh shows up again in the Exodus when they're in the wilderness. And they're fed and water comes out of the rock and all these other things and they're provided for. And their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. Do you know that God is the provider? If you don't, you're not ready to cross. Because he will talk to you about making sacrifices that you are unwilling to make if you haven't spent the time and are shattered out of your daydream. The wilderness purpose is to shake us out of our daydream. It really is. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Deuteronomy chapter 31. A part of this language talking about their crossing. This is kind of getting right to the end. We'll look at it at the beginning of next week's sermon with Moses He's going to die on Mount Nebo just as Jesus died on a mountain before they ultimately crossed. But here he is, and here's the language. You ready? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble once you cross, because I know you're going into a war zone. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you, and he will not fail you, and he will not forsake you. I mean, that's just a sermon in and of itself. I just sit down. We just sit there and read that over and over and over. Did you get that? Be courageous. Why? Well, it's a quality that we get out of the knowledge that he will never do what? He will never forsake us. He will not fail you. How deeply have you internalized that? How deeply is that in your DNA? Do you realize he's not going to leave you or forsake you? Some of you may this morning feel incredibly forsaken. I'm just telling you on the full authority of Scripture, he will not leave you. Now, Sometimes he feels very distant, but notice I said feels. He's very near to the brokenhearted, the Bible says. He's near to the contrite. He will not leave us. He will not. He will not forsake us. Psalm 23, we know it well. This is incredibly important. Do you believe that God guides I'm going to ask you the question, do you believe that God guides? If you believe that God guides, then necessarily you're going to need to believe that he speaks. And if you believe that he speaks and guides, you're going to need to necessarily believe that you have the capacity to hear. That's Psalm 23. This is the essence of the qualities of God that give us confidence to go into a war zone. It's a land filled with milk and honey. It's a, it's a land that's, a, that's been given to us. You know, many of you went through the gifts class earlier this morning, kind of our Sunday school of sorts, right? Dave did a great job, I heard, uh, and I've heard him uh, teach on this. It's phenomenal. But you've got to realize that if I'm going to cross in there and use that gift, that, that it's going to release people from bondage, and it's going to be, it's, this is my spiritual territory, the Lord's given it to me, I, and I've told you this before, I pray this very often when I go into certain places, and I just go and I say, Lord, I'm asking you for this territory. I'm asking you for souls to be brought into the kingdom. I'm asking you that you would give me this as my spiritual inheritance. 
I know it's a war zone. I know there are going to be people that are going to despise me and hate me and malign me and everything else, and I'm just there to help. But that's just part of being in a war zone. You know that happens. I mean, you can have the best of intentions, be dropped behind, a, behind enemy lines, go in to save a people, and be shot by the very people that you're trying to save, not knowing if you're the enemy or the releaser from captivity. Just part of the job. Do you realize that he does lead us? Let's, I, know, I know you know this well, but let's break it down just a little bit. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, that alone, just that metaphor tells us what? A shepherd is constantly attentive to the sheep. It's just like Jesus said, if you've got 99 sheep, right, and one just wanders off, what do you do? A hundred sheep. You leave the others. You leave the 99 and you go after the one. It means that I'm not going to forsake you. I see exactly where you're going. And I also, thank God, I realize, and I'll speak about me, Jeff, that you're also a sheep. And sheep are sometimes not the mo most intelligent of animals. So I just kind of, you know. And then, and like, but he's my shepherd. You believe that? Do you understand that he is the shepherd that will not leave the one even though he's got 99, he will go after the one. Do you believe that? If you don't, you're going to get over there and you're going to say, God's forsaken me, he's forgotten about me, and I'm just in a war zone. I shall not want. Do you realize that he is the provider? Now, I'm not saying he provides every one of our epithumia, right, that we talked about, our lusts and everything that we feel like we need to be happy. But I can look back, oh, Laura and I can look back over the last you know, almost 30 years of marriage coming up here in another few years, 30 years of marriage, and we can see so consistently he would tell us to do something. It would say, wow, that just doesn't make any sense. And yet we did it, and he always provided. We've never gone without a meal. And I would even say this, we eat well. We've lived in guest houses. We've lived, driven other people's cars. We've, I mean, I look back over the long, you know, three decades with my uh, redheaded sweet wife that I love, and, and we look back and he just he always is there. I will not want. We've never wanted. This is true. Had we not believed, but we were tested in the wilderness. And if you fail a test, just take another lap around the wilderness. You fail another test, just take another lap. He loves you enough not to put you in a war zone when you're ill-prepared to go into a war zone. He makes me to lay down in green, to, uh, excuse me, to lie down in green pastures. He makes me. 2019 was a year that he kind of forced me, literally, to lie down. And can I tell you, the next part of that, which is beautiful, what you're going to say, and he restores me, he restores my soul. He was doing some restoration of my soul that probably necessitated forcing me to lie down. And yet, it didn't feel like a green pasture. UCLA Medical did not feel like a green pasture to me. It seemed kind of sterile and white, and it was maybe a nice place relative to other hospitals, but it was still a hospital. Or Eisenhower for my wife, or all the other things that occurred in 2019. He cares about us enough to even use the small... God is a shrewd God. He never wastes your sickness, your trouble, your struggle, your depression. He'll never waste it. He never will. He leads me. He leads me. It's what shepherds do. How do we know that from the wilderness experience? Cloud by day and fire by night. What is that a picture of? Well, there's this big fire at night. And whenever the cloud moved and they would 
take up the camp, move on to the next place in the wilderness. Now, what happened at Pentecost is all of a sudden uh, the Spirit descends on them. And I think, this is my view of this anyway, rather than a big fire for the collective community called the Hebrews at that point, this collective community, now what? Each little bit of the fire was distributed on each one of their heads. In my view, that signifies that now I'm going to guide you individually. Before, they were kind of uh, guided as a corporate community. The law, the priests, the sacrifices, right? But in terms of individual GPS system, each one of those little fire that appeared on their heads at Pentecost was a picture, in my view, that now I'm going to lead each one of you individually under the new covenant. He did. He, he will. He will lead us beside quiet waters, and he will restore my soul. Now, what does it mean to restore the soul? What is the soul? The soul is the mind, will, and emotions. This is what it is. I need a restoration of the way I think about reality. I need a, a complete redoing. As we'll see in a minute, psych, psychologists understand this. We tend to be so focused. We have the same tapes playing over in our head over and over and over and over. How do they get retrained? I'm going to show you something in a minute that might be fascinating to you, that science is still trying to catch up with what God so clearly says in his word. He guides me in paths of righteousness. He leads. He guides. He does it. Why? All of it for his name's sake. He doesn't do to make me famous. He makes it because when Jesus is lifted up, everybody gets life. When a person is lifted up, do you know what happens? Do you see what happens to people when they get lifted up too much? They go crazy. When people are worshipped, people who are meant to be worshippers, we're created to worship. We're not created to be worshipped. So when an individual tries to elevate him or herself up to be worshipped, sometimes, oftentimes, they go crazy. There, some stuff, stuff starts happening up here, and it just and smoke comes out, and they lose any sense of reality. Why? Because we were made to worship, not to be worshipped. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Even though I cross the Jordan and go into a war zone, I'm not fearing anything. Why? Because you're with me. You'll never leave me. You'll never forsake me. Your word tells me that. You won't. You know the end from the beginning, so you're not going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen in Jeff's life. Oh, I don't know what happens going to happen in Sarah's life. If she, you know, I just don't know what's going to happen. I hope it all works out for him. He knows exactly what's going to happen. What a business partner. To be partnered with somebody that's leading you into a place that he already knows the end. Whether he takes your life or leaves you for another 20 years is irrelevant in terms of the totality of the narrative of your life from beginning to end. And there will be no end. It all makes sense to him because he's fashioned it in a certain way. The Bible's clear. The number of days ordained for you were written in a book before there was even one of them. But do you believe that or do you freak out every time death tends to sneak its little long snout into the doorway of your life? <sighs> I'm not going to fear. Why? Because he's with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, what are rods and staffs for? Well, sometimes poking and prodding. And, but you know what? It's a comfort to have that happen. The least comfortable people, young people in terms of their parents, are latchkey kids that have no oversight. 
They don't even know how. They don't. It, it freaks people. We think we want this kind of liberty. Trust me, you don't want the kind of liberty that can lead to a libertine spirit that you can just do anything you want. We're not created to function in that capacity. So he does. He comforts us with his rod and staff. Now, I love this. You even prepare a table on the other side of the Jordan. So when I go into the war zone and I've got enemies everywhere, what is God doing? Uh, sit down and eat. I'm preparing, I'm preparing a nice dinner, and that can either be spiritually understood or not, but I'm preparing this lavish banquet for you right in the presence of your enemies. You're going to have the kind of satisfaction and, well, you're just going to have the kind of, you're going to have joy in the midst of the battle is what he's really saying. I'm preparing a table for you right in the midst of your enemies. And, uh, by the way, you have anointed my head with oil. He's given us the Holy Spirit. My cup overflows. See, crossing the Jordan, your cup has got to be pretty full before you cross. Because what you're saying when you go into the war zone is I have something to overflow out of me. So what happens in the wilderness, first there's an emptying and then there's a filling. And then you cross the Jordan and then you begin to overflow and people come to Christ. It's powerful, isn't it? Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if you've got that kind of confidence and you've come to those understandings of God, catch me here. If you really deeply have internalized that your Father will provide for you, you're never going to go without you're going to have what you need to accomplish the purposes. He's going to ask you to make sacrifices that are going to be kind of overwhelming and maybe frighten you to some degree. But it doesn't matter because you're not going to go, I, will, I, what? I shall not want. That's what I know about my God. He is the provider. I'm not going to go without. And you just keep going. If you're not there yet, then it's okay. Take another lap around in the wilderness because there's still more work that the Lord needs to do in your soul. Now, does the Lord perfect you before you cross? Let me be clear. No. Those who cross are not perfect by any means. And he will continue to hone you for the rest of your life, whether or not you stay on the other side of the Jordan and you're battling for his kingdom and his glory and his power. You'll continue to be transformed through the process. But there is some substantive level, and I think that's a level that only the Father knows, but he's not going to throw you into a war zone because otherwise what happened to Israel will happen to us. But what happened to Israel is not, they were under the law, we're under the new covenant. So we have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, what does all this mean? Well, to kind of sum all this up, I'm going to share a little study, a psychological study with you. To kind of sum all this up, in the end, 1 John, and we, we know this, 1 John chapter 5, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, what does that mean? Idols, what they do is they widen uh, and you can't see what the Lord is asking you to see. Uh, Jesus, again, as we've talked about the last few weeks, uh, you just don't have ears to hear or you don't have eyes to see. What blo The blockage, as we've seen, comes from idols. So, Lord, protect us. And, and I gave you some ways in which you can practically work against idolatry in your own life. So there's something, you know, the psychologist called in, uh, excuse me, inattentional blindness. So you, you just don't give attention to certain things. There's a fascinating, fascinating study. Again, I'm quoting from uh, David McRaney, who I uh, looked at not long ago. Listen to what he says. This is, this is, to me, a fascinating study. 
He says that psychologists call missing information in plain sight inattentional blindness, right? Just not attending to it. You're not. And you believe with confidence that your eyes capture everything before them and that your memories are recorded versions of those captured images. The truth, though, is you see only a small portion of your environment at any one moment. Your attention is like a spotlight and only, catch this, only the illuminated portions of the world appear in your perception. Now, what does that mean? Well, anyway, you come in here today and you walk in and then you say... I always ask people, I, I do this often, oh, Jeff, I liked your message today. Oh, thank you. What did you like about it? And I've told you this before. It's always so radically different. Some of you right now are paying attention. You're thinking about the Super Bowl and you're going to get the thing out of the oven fast enough and you told your somebody to get it out. And, and, and you know, we're all distracted or we have particular focus you know, that's just kind of this way. Uh, and you just don't. Somebody's looking at the person's hair. And, you know, I think I like her haircut. I think I'd like to get my hair cut that way the next week. And then another person's over here going, you know, uh, you know, that tie. I don't know. He wore that tie a couple of weeks ago. He should, he should change his ties around a little bit more. You know, whatever it is. And all of a sudden we lose track of the maybe something right in front of us. That's what idols do. They divert your attention. You get laser focus. And all of a sudden that thing is illuminated in your mind. And what's right in front of you, for instance, Jesus, the Son of God, Judas couldn't see because he was so laser-focused on, focused on politics. And he was trying to get Jesus to rise up and overthrow the Romans. He was so laser-focused on that that somewhere it made sense to him that I should, and I could probably make a few bucks off this in the meantime, and I'll accomplish, uh, I'll kill three or four birds with one stone. He couldn't see what was right in front of him. This is not unusual. So they did this experiment, uh, Simon and uh, Shabri, uh, these two guys, back in 1999. So here's the, here's the basis of the experiment, kind of, kind of an interesting experiment. So they had these, uh, they got about four or five in white T-shirts and four or five, they were looked to be college-age students, four or five in black t-shirts, they had them, they gave them a couple of basketballs and they had them start kind of circling one another. And then they said, okay, pass the balls back and forth. So they were taking the basketball, pass it back, back and forth. So it was kind of a lot going on. There was kind of circling one another and throwing the balls back and forth. Then they filmed it and then they showed it to an audience not too dissimilar maybe from this. And they said, okay, how many times did they throw the basketball back and forth? And so the people, they were pretty good. Very few people didn't, didn't get it right. So say whatever it was, 34 times they threw, there were 34 passes. And they said, did you see anything unusual? And the vast majority of people said, oh, no, I didn't really see anything unusual. Now, here's the freaky part. It's true. Right in the middle of them running around, throwing the basketball back and forth. And it was only, they were constrained to about this big. It wasn't like a huge room. An area about this. They were all kind of tight, throwing the basketball back and forth. They were counting. They were so that a girl in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of them and they're throwing the ball around her, turns and then walks, walks out. The vast majority of people watching what was going on never even saw her in a gorilla suit. Because, and I, if, if you're watching it and you don't, or you aren't asked to count, 
towards it, there's a gorilla walking, you know, you know walking through. It's like, what was that? But when they were counting, they couldn't see it. Fascinating, fascinating experiment. Now, what he goes on to say, and I, and I think it's absolutely right, and there's a spiritual analog here. Don't miss this. Simons and Chabris showed tunnel vision is a fact of life. It's your default setting. In their research, they point out how easy it is to miss people you recognize in a movie theater as you scan for a seat. Anybody had that experience? So you come in, uh, it's a little crowded, maybe you church the red door and you look over there and you find you uh, looking for a seat right there. And somebody you had dinner with last night is right, right there going, trying to shake your hand and, you, and you're just looking right past them because your tunnel vision is just going to try to find a, a seat. But if you were to go back and go, what happened at church the red door? Well, you know, did you see the Smiths you had dinner? No, they told me they were going to be at church tomorrow morning and I, I didn't even see them. And they were trying to, ah, you know. But you were so focused on seeing the seat that everything went down into a very tunnel-like vision. Now, notice what he says here. He says, your perception is built out of what you attend to. Why do people come to a service like this and they all walk away with something so radically different? Well, we're in different places in our life. Some people hear things so differently. Sometimes I've taught something four or five times. The fifth time the person looks at me like, why didn't you ever tell me that before? And I understand from a psychological perspective, there are moments and times when you simply cannot hear what's being said. Idols give you almost permanent and indefinite blockage. So how are you going to cross the Jordan and actually walk into your spiritual inheritance? Meaning, I'm talking about heaven, right? Let's be clear for those of you who may be new. I'm talking about walking into what God's called you to do in the earth with community, with your gifting, etc. If you're focused on the wrong, if you're attending to the wrong thing. In the grill experiment, people are more likely to see the bizarre intruder if they're just allowed to watch the video without expectations, but it doesn't guarantee they will see it. Your vision narrows to a keyhole view of the world when you're focused, but it doesn't widen to take in everything when you're relaxed. You're usually ignoring the periphery or thinking about something else. This is called inattentional blindness. Your tendency to believe you have perfect perception and recall leads to mistakes in judgment of your own mind and the minds of others. Human eyes aren't video cameras and memories formed aren't videos. You need to understand that. And then lastly, his conclusion very simply is this. The world outside your head and the world inside it are not identical. Let me say it again. The world outside your head, what's actually occurring, and then what's going on inside your head are not identical. I know that's hard to understand. That's why it's so hard for people. We talk about, I was talking about this to our executive team this last week. So we were talking about uh, our from the ground up campaign and, you know, is this going to be the right logo we should use? And, and he put it out there, what's your opinion? And, of course, everybody had a different opinion for the most part. And I said, well, what do we do? Well, I guess we'll give it to Jeff. I said, no, I'm not the creative here. Let, we can give our, if they ask our opinion, we'll give our opinion. But in the end, it's got to, it needs to go back to the person with the gift to do it in the first place. None of us are going to agree any, anyway. So it's the same thing with worship or the length of the service or anything. It's always going to be the same. You're going to have a perspective and your perception in your head is that that's exactly right because that's what's going on in your head. But you've got to realize what's going on outside and what's going on inside sometimes are radically 
different. Other people's perception, other people's attitudes. Thank God we do have a book that can bring us back to some point of clarity and continuity. It's called the Word. But there are many things that aren't quite, mm, your perception is just not what everybody else's perception is. The mistake is, is that we imagine that it's true. That's what he's saying. So lastly, it says, the information flowing into consciousness from your senses is not only limited by your attention, but it's also edited before it even gets there. Once there, it mixes like paint with all the other thoughts and perceptions swirling around in your cranium, the way you feel, the culture you grew up in, the task at hand, the chaos of technology. It all creates a kind of a granular busy visual world. Only a slice of it arrives in your mind. And here's the end. You ready? Despite this, the great circus of human activity and invention goes on. You choose what to see more than you realize, and then you form beliefs without taking into account your selective vision. You can't do much about it other than to choose wisely when it's important. The unexpected isn't guaranteed to jar you out of your daydream. So there's two things that happen for crossers. They go in. The gospel is the first thing that jars people out of their daydreams. It's supposed to be good news, but for some, it, Paul says, it's kind of the aroma of death of sorts. Some people are going to take this information that we give them, and they're going to embrace it, and their lives are going to change, and generations are going to change right here in the Coachella Valley. Grant, what, marriages are going to be transformed. Relationships with kids are going to be transformed. Kingdom activities are going to proliferate, you know. Ministries, ministers all over are going to be maybe supported, provided for. I, I'm just, it's a litany of things that could go on. Unbelievable. But then others are going to hear the gospel and they're going to be plagued with idolatry and they're not going to be able to see it or hear it and they're going to turn around and they're going to try to kill the messenger. That's why it's a war zone. We have to be prepared for that. Do you understand that? We have to be prepared for that, folks. So what do we do? Well, I can just tell you this, and we'll, we'll get into this next week. Once we understand that, what are the characteristics of those? Because we're crossing now. Do you feel this? We are crossing, right? See, I'm not leaving you in the wilderness. We're, we're crossing. What are the characteristics of those, we'll see next week, that we're crossing with? What do they look like? What kind of characteristics they have that flow out of, understand this, that flow out of their confidence in God. See, if your characteristics define you as flowing out of confidence in yourself, then be careful with those crossers. They're probably going to get wiped out once they get over there. Are you following me? I want to see humility. I, won't, I will not partner with people. I just will not administer anymore. I've learned the hard way. I'll minister to people, but I will not deeply partner. I'm talking about on a deeper level without people of great humility because I know they're not ready to cross, and they could be a liability once we get over into a war zone. Does that make sense? That is so important to understand. But I can tell you this, Proverbs 10.5, this is the heartbeat of where we are in the ministry of Church at the Red Door right now. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Now, what does that mean? I think we're, I think we're right on the precipice of a very significant harvest in the valley, not church the red door only i see more unity among the pastors than i've seen i've been out here 32 years in the desert i see more unity in the valley than i've seen in 32 years not perfect unity but praying for one another, actually praying for one another 
not trying to compete constantly against one another, talking other churches down and this and that. I see a beautiful unity. I think that it's emerging, and I think we've already entered the battle because I, th- I see a lot of the pastors that have gotten cancer and struggles and everything else, and you say, oh, that's just incidental. I'm actually some of, I'm one of the older guys now in this group. In fact, I was trying to find somebody older than me, and it was Mike Harrison. So sorry, Mike. But, you know, I see some of these pastors around the valley, and, and, and so there's unity here. I think we're right on the precipice of a very significant harvest. And I tell you this, you will not leave me behind. Oh, the church of the red door wouldn't be left behind, shamefully, right in the middle of the harvest. Where are they? They're sleeping out there in the wilderness. Don't you want that? Does that not raise the hair on the back of your neck? Oh, Lord, that I could be part of seeing people released from the dark, depressing horror, the horror show that they call life. I don't care how wealthy they are. It means nothing. And we have an opportunity right now. We have an opportunity to not just have a different place to worship, but to actually have a presence in the desert. There's a difference between a place to worship and having a presence in the desert, a lighthouse, if you will. Don't you want that? I want that so. Now, some of you are new to your walk. Maybe you haven't even come out of Egypt yet. You need to get baptized, filled with the Spirit, and start the process of discipleship. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a few years. I said, well, it took Jesus' disciples about three years, and he was really good at it. <laughs> right? So it takes us at least three years. I, I usually say, give me, give me a, I don't do so much ministry with women directly, obviously, with more with men. If you give me a man that has a heart, I said, give me three years with that guy. He's really in the Word, really, really hanging in there, and he'll be a different man in three years. I've said that for years, and I, it's kind of been true. Give me a man that has a whole heart for God for three years. It's not wandering around the wilderness aimlessly. It's the purpose for which God is saying, okay, I'm going to test him in this. I'm going to test him over here a little bit. I'm going to hone him over here. I'm going to take some of these idols out. It's going to be dry over here. He's going to, right? So it's a hard process, but I am preparing him or now her to cross the Jordan so that people can be released. But you've got to have overflow. If you're still needing to take in, that's okay. There's a beautiful season for that. You got to be overflow to go and cross. You got to be overflow. So we're crossing. Believe it or not, we're crossing. Next week, I'm going to show you right before they did cross what happened to Moses and his instruction before he went. And then the passing of the baton to Joshua. And what were Joshua? We looked at Joshua and Caleb. We're even going to go deeper. Qualities of those who cross and are ready for warfare, spiritual warfare. Never physical violence. You understand that. And once we get there, folks, we're going to see, we're going to see transformation in people's lives. And by the way, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're to, not to the point yet where your highest priority is the gospel, it's okay. It takes a while. I mean, I'm, not, I'm just saying, but if that becomes your highest priority, you're probably one of those ready to cross. And many of you have crossed already. This does make sense. Okay, I hope this is helpful. I hope this is helpful. I'm going to now turn it back over to Pastor Paul. He's going to close us in prayer, and we're going to have communion. And again, we're looking forward to February 9th to be in prayer. If you have any questions, again, submit them via email or submit them outside. And I don't think I'm missing anything else. Stacy, thanks for your gift of song. And Pastor Paul.